Western governments say that they are working toward a net zero future. But are those same governments propping up fossil fuel companies with billions of dollars in subsidies? And how can we change that? Hello, and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of progressive Canadian podcasts. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with my co-host, Kyla Hewson. On today's episode, we talked to Katrina Miller, the Executive Director of Canadians for Tax Fairness, about their new report, Taxes and the Path to a Green Economy, which is all about how the Canadian tax system continues to subsidize fossil fuel companies and how to change that. Katrina has worked for over 20 years to win environmental and social justice improvements at every level of government, collaborating with a wide array of labour, community and academic experts, and helping organizations and individuals to hone their skills and strategies. I was really excited to have this conversation. I had been speaking with a friend of mine who we don't always see eye to eye on politics, let's say. And I had said something offhandedly about how, oh, well, the government, like we're subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. And that person responded by saying, no, we're not. The fossil fuel industry is like paying for everything in Canada and owns all of our politicians. And I was like, I feel like maybe both of those things are true. And it made me realize (laughs) that I actually didn't understand subsidies at all. And I had just been like parroting a talking point that I'd heard other smarter people than me say. And I was like, wow, I cannot hold up a conversation with this person about like how subsidies work. And Kristen was very kind to indulge my interest. And we got a fantastic guest to explain subsidies to me. (laughs) I do think it's like a really important topic to handle, though, because I think most Canadians, the polling on this is clear. Most Canadians do want us to do something about climate change and we want to transition to a net zero future. And like, it's a real question how you incentivize businesses to be more green. But I think people often don't realize the extent to which that like fossil fuel companies and actually other big corporations in other industries as well, they get handouts from government in a way that like small businesses, like they just don't have those same advantages in a lot of ways. So I think it's so important that we have this conversation. I was not able to make it for this conversation, so I'm really excited to listen to it after the fact. So I'll be listening to it at the same time as everyone who's listening to this right now. (laughs) (laughs) So since we know you're going to enjoy this conversation as much as I will, uh, please show your love with a five-star review on your preferred listening platform. All right, hit it. Katrina, thank you so much for joining us. We're really, I'm super excited to talk about subsidies and the tax system in general. We've done a couple of episodes in the past about the unfairness of the global tax system. And I just, there's so many angles. There's just, it's, you can never say enough. (laughs) It's a sad state of affairs to say that that's a true statement. Um, And I think what's interesting is that people uh, have become much more aware of the level of unfairness and how it impacts us in our daily lives. We talk about, you know, issues around wealth inequality and income inequality and how the tax system currently has sort of a a perverse impact on that. It doesn't equitably share the burden of taxes uh, across wealth and income. And now we're seeing that reflect in terms of our climate action goals. Is the tax system actually supporting our climate action goals as a society? And what ways does it support it? And what ways is it potentially acting against it, even though that's not its intended purpose? Yeah, for sure. And okay, so I actually would like to start with hopefully, hopefully an easy question, although maybe not. What is a subsidy? (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, you know, it, that, that's, it, that seems like an easy question, um, but it isn't necessarily an easy question because we've gotten so used to subsidies, particularly subsidies for, um, for the corporate uh, sector and corporate environment uh, in Canada that um, many things that we give corporate Canada, we don't consider a subsidy. We consider it part of, of them doing business and providing you know, productivity in our economy. So a subsidy in terms of taxes can be all sorts of deductions that corporations are allowed uh, for their expenses that they deduct from their profit levels uh, in order to not pay taxes on it. Subsidies can be different types of tax credits that they may get uh, in order to try to incentivize them to do uh, certain types of behaviors, certain types of research and development that are meant to create you know, greater wealth in the economy. Subsidies can be as minor as you know, uh, a loan that the government gets at a very, very cheap rate in order to buy new equipment. There's a variety of different subsidies, but basically it's us using public money to support a corporate activity, corporate expansion, or corporate profit making. Okay, cool. That it makes sense, and I feel good about myself because it's essentially what I thought they were. Few. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if if that's the case, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people argue that like subsidies for business are a good thing, and so. Why do people on the left, like me and Kristen, keep talking about the impact of fossil fuel subsidies? And like, what's the big deal? There can't be, they can't be that bad. Like, we have to pull back and look at subsidies in general for private sector in Canada and in North America, and frankly, uh, in Europe as well. This really comes from, you know, about five decades of economic belief that if we lower the cost uh, corporations have to pay if we support their expansion, if we support their economic profit making, that eventually all of us will share in the benefit of that, that the wealth that's created by that activity will be shared across the economy. And what's happened, in fact, and what we've seen in study after study is that's not true. We support uh, you know, corporate economic growth in our economy. We give them subsidies for research and development. We give them tax breaks for, uh, you know, for various types of expansion activity. And they create profit and wealth, but that wealth gets concentrated and funneled to a, to a very few people, frankly that are their shareholders. And in fact, that operation that we've been doing where we've been providing these subsidies or low tax rates, much lower than they were 50 years ago, have funneled wealth and really exacerbated our wealth inequality issues that we face right now, which uh, I think many people, including myself, would call a crisis, a crisis that is intertwined with our climate change crisis. So, you know, the economy that we've built that does subsidize uh, various corporate sectors at a, a significant rate that allows them to emit carbon and externalize the costs on the whole of society and the environment um, has also allowed them to concentrate profits and send them to a very few people who've now become our ultra wealthy. And in this way, we see that climate change and inequality as crises are completely intertwined and tied to the same economic system. So like, I don't know, it feels obvious and it feels like, I don't know, it feels like something that is known, but I don't think it is. Like, I think a lot of people don't really understand how much we're subsidizing 
like especially the fossil fuel industry, but like a lot of other like high emitting industries. Why is it so hard to change the way people think about this stuff? I, I guess like, why is it so hard to understand and why is it so difficult to like, it sounds bad. Why is it still like this? Well, I think it's tough because we have, you know, become used to the idea that businesses should be able to get certain benefits and deduct certain types of expenses in order to operate in our economies, in order to operate effectively in our economies. And so, you know, even as we did this report, we had to stop ourselves from time to time and question as we looked at various types of subsidies. I'll give you an example. Large corporations are allowed to deduct their prior year losses from their current year profits um, as a way of reducing the amount of profit that's actually taxed. And we had to really sort of think about this and consider, is this a fair subsidy? Is this, you know, is this make sense to allow for businesses to spread out their losses and their gains throughout a, a larger period of time? I mean, certainly, um, you know, us with our wages don't get that, although individuals with their individual investments do get that. But, you know, we asked ourselves, is this fair? And quite frankly, in the end, we kind of came up with an answer of, well, we don't know if it's fair. It's a, it's a choice that we've made as a society. And the truth of it is, is that when we look at the numbers, one of the businesses, one of the industries that's taking the greatest advantage of this is the fossil fuel sector. They're some of the biggest users of this particular tax measure. Um, and so in that sense, it's become an unintended, probably, subsidy of the fossil fuel sector because they're using it so heavily. We have these, you know, these deductions that businesses are allowed and that the fossil fuel industry is one of the largest users of, like prior year losses, like uh, capital cost allowances, which basically allows you to deduct from your profit the depreciation of your equipment, of your of your physical assets, um, which is an interesting concept in and of itself. Um, and at the same time, um, the fossil fuel sector is one of the largest distributors of profit in Canada. So out of, you know, if we look at the 10 top businesses distributing profit to their shareholders through stock buybacks, through dividends, and a variety of other measures, we see that five of those companies are fossil fuel companies, in fact, um, in Canada. So, you know, something isn't right here when we have fossil fuel companies able to deduct a bunch of expenses from their profits while also being one of the largest uh, distributor of profits to shareholders. The tax system loses out while wealthy individuals tend to benefit the most. Well put. I just, it seems like, I suppose, the system works because the fossil industry like is so huge and Canada has become so wealthy on it that I, I guess people like it. I don't know. Kristen and I grew up in Alberta, so we're very much like from that oil town background. And there's a lot of support for it in like our communities back home. So I just wonder, like, how do we explain this in a way that it's working, right? <laughs> like, I'm constantly hearing the rhetoric that Alberta is covering the bills for other provinces and stuff like that. And I just, what do I tell people that think it's working? I think that, you know, we need to look at what's happening in terms of our climate change crisis and what our duty is as a nation 
in meeting our commitments. You know, we've made a commitment to reduce our carbon um, by 40, 45% by 2030, come to net zero by 2050. We know um, in Canada that if, if global action isn't taken, if we don't take you know, action in our country, and if that isn't matched by other nations, that climate change is going to cost us a lot of money. It's going to be a huge hit on our economy. I and mean, we're not even just talking about the environmental hit. We're talking about the economic hit of climate change. It'll be costing us, you know, $100 billion a year against our national economy. And that's a massive amount of money. And it certainly, it certainly rivals the amount of money that the fossil fuel industry brings into our economy. And so when we think about it in that terms, we have to imagine how we're going to make our way to an economy that meets our climate commitments and understand the hard truth that that means that we're going to have to reduce the share of the economy that's spent uh, extracting fossil fuels and refining them and turning them into products that then emit more carbon. We just have to understand that. It doesn't mean that it has to happen tomorrow, and nor should it. You know, we should be mapping a road that looks to have degrowth within that industry while we have greater growth in clean, green energy production. Yes, yes. Oh, I love degrowth. It's one of my favorite. Oh, it's one of my favorite topics. <laughs> so in the report, the report mentions that in the next five years, Canada has to spend between like 150 and 350 billion dollars to meet our emissions reduction goals, which sounds like a lot of money to me. And so I'm just wondering, like, where did those numbers come from? Why uh, is it a lot of money? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's funny. Um, it sounds like a lot of money, right? 150, 350 billion over the next five years. And, and we brought those numbers uh, into the report based off of five different estimates that were done by other organizations, um, including the Royal Bank. It is a lot of money. There's no doubt about it. But when we look at the cost of climate change, you know, the idea that climate change, just in its most reduced economic measures, could cost us up to $100 billion by 2055 if we do nothing, you know, $150, $350 billion over five years, which equals about 30 to $70 billion to spend up front is frankly a bargain. We should grab the bargain. We should spend the money now to avoid the costs in the future. It's really that simple. And it's really about spending money too in places that help transform our economy. And while we're spending money in those places, in our electricity grid, in our infrastructure, in our natural resources like our forests, we can do so in ways that benefit local communities and create a more inclusive economy, frankly, because right now our economy does tend to funnel money up to the richest in our economy. And wouldn't it be wonderful if in this green transformation of our economy, we could also find our way to a just and inclusive economy that does a better job of sharing the prosperity that we create? Yes, 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 yes. Because like that's something that we're already struggling with. Like, Climate crisis aside, you know, uh, people are seeing it in their grocery bills every day. Or, gosh, if anyone's had to look for a place to rent recently in any metropolitan city in Canada, it's just, it's hard. It's hard right now. And I think 
I mean, like, it's not just $350 billion spent to, like, mitigate climate change over the next five years. It's also, like you said, like, going to save us money in the future by a lot. And it makes people's lives better. Like, just planting trees on roads that are really, really hot are, like, it's good for everybody. (laughs) Yeah, there's, I mean, as I said, you know, we can gain a lot of benefit from this expenditure depending on how we do it. And that's the question we face right now. Look, we just came, you know, from 40, 50 years of an economy that depended heavily on subsidizing uh, corporate economic productivity and growth and allowed for the cost of emissions to be externalized on the whole of environment and society, while the profit from economic growth was largely funneled to a concentrated few. So we have arrived at a place where we have an inequality crisis, and we have a climate change crisis. And what we do next, how we structure the investments we make, how we decide to structure the tax system, is really, really important. And we should learn from the lessons of the past. We should ensure that carbon no longer gets extracted and burned without um, without the cost being properly built into that operation. And we should ensure that the prosperity of our economy is shared amongst many, many people. This means a different take, frankly, for government. Right now, our governments over the last 20, 30 years and frankly, in the plans that they've put forward for the future, are depending on offering even more subsidies to private sector in order to incentivize them to lead our change to a lower carbon economy. And what will happen there are two things. One, the incentives may not be enough for the private sector to fully lead that change. And two, the private sector will have more money, which through our economic system will then be funneled into profits, into those who already have the concentrated wealth. And so we can see that we're kind of making the same mistake we've made in the past in terms of how we're deciding to invest via subsidizing the private sector. What we actually need to do is rebalance scale a bit. We need broad tax measures that understand um, where the wealth is right now in our society, take some of that wealth back into public hands, and then use that to fund public leadership in the transition to a net zero economy. I think right now, a lot of the rhetoric, especially happening in the Canadian government, but like just globally, is uh, the talk around like a, a carbon tax has been like the most aggressive that I've heard governments really get on climate change. And can you just can you just talk about maybe why carbon taxes are so popular and also why they're not enough? I don't know. That's a leading question, but I think it's. (laughs) Well, I mean, carbon taxes, you know, at their inception were really an attempt largely by fairly conservative economists to figure out how to put the price of carbon into the economy, understanding that the externalization of that cost was hurting us. So, you know, it made sense uh, to use a carbon tax in order to do that. Um, The problem is right now is that because we have such a globalized economy and not everybody in the economy, in the global economy, is on board for a carbon tax, any industry that's dealing in, you know, in multinational trade and economic activity uh, finds itself kind of caught between various carbon taxes or no carbon taxes, depending on where it's doing business. And so you have what are called 
trade-exposed industries. Nations try to deal with trade-exposed industries by basically letting them off the hook for the most part in terms of the carbon tax. They give them free allowances for carbon emissions. They uh, reduce the price that they have to pay to a point where the only people really paying the bulk of the, the cost are individuals. And that's what's the case in Canada. Now, of course, most individuals are not happy with this picture. We are facing an affordability crisis in Canada, where most people are having a hard time just making sure they can keep their cupboards stocked in order to feed the families. Um, and so the carbon price, the tax that they're paying on various types of products and activities, feels like yet another burden that they just can't afford. This is why there's been so much focus on the carbon tax. Uh, and frankly, if we're not able to ensure that the carbon tax is properly spread, the price of carbon is properly spread between the private sector and the various industries that are high emitters and individuals, we're going to face a public backlash that is going to be very, very hard to overcome. And that backlash is, you know, potentially uh, has the potential to derail some of our some of our great economic transition plans in terms of climate action. Is there a way to implement a carbon tax where the the especially the biggest polluters don't just I don't know engage in like weird corporate tax trades or just raising the cost? I mean, we've seen especially the price of gas like skyrocket and also like the profits of those companies has been skyrocketing. So like is there a way to implement a carbon tax where it doesn't just fall on the like the consumer at the end? There is, in fact, and, and the European Union has just started a five-year phase-in process to do exactly that. They're um, creating a tariff system on their borders. So you have a product come in from a jurisdiction that doesn't have a carbon tax going into a place that does have a carbon tax. That product has to pay a, a tariff right at the border in order to account for the carbon tax. So what, ha and then if you have a product going out of a jurisdiction that has a high carbon tax going to a jurisdiction that has no carbon tax, then they get potentially a subsidy for that action in order to try to deal with issues around competition between jurisdictions that have no carbon tax and jurisdictions that do have a carbon tax. And this is sort of a Band-Aid solution, but it's a better solution than what we have in Canada right now, because what it will allow is for the European Union to phase out the use of free allowances or various types of subsidies around their carbon pricing system for trade-exposed industries. We need that kind of border tariff system. It's called a border adjustment in Canada or potentially in North America, if we can get the U.S. on board uh, with a similar tax. Okay, cool. Carbon taxes are the main thing that Canada has been leaning on, I think, especially our politicians. I, I don't know. I Maybe I'm a pessimist. I feel like it's partially because people don't really understand how they work and it's like a punchy thing that sounds good. But like, what else What else is there? Is, is are, are carbon taxes the only option? No. And in fact, one of the reasons why we wanted, we wanted to do this report um, and undertake this research is to say what else, what's beyond carbon tax in terms of how we can use the tax system to support our, you know, our just transition, our climate action goals. Um, and there's a lot beyond carbon tax. Ultimately, carbon tax. Okay, let, let's just step back for a second. Our tax system is basically used for three purposes. It's used to 
gain revenue that we use to fund our public institutions, programs, and investments. It's used to rebalance power in the economy by taking wealth that's concentrated in certain parts of the economy and redistributing it to others. And it's used to incentivize different types of behavior. Okay, The carbon tax only answers the third role of taxes. It's trying to incentivize behavior. And in some ways, depending on the price mark, it does. And in some ways, it doesn't. It's got sort of a lukewarm reception in terms of whether or not it's going to incentivize behavior in the long term. What we aren't using our tax system for are those other two roles. We're not doing a good job of using our tax system to bring in the revenue we need for our public institutions to lead in taking climate action. If we brought in a wealth tax, if we brought in excess profits tax, if we ended huge gaping tax loopholes that are being used by the wealthiest, like the capital gains tax uh, loophole, we would be able to gather the public revenue we need to do large scale innovative investments in our electricity grid, in our public transit, in green public low-cost housing and a whole range of other activities that in fact could put us directly on the path to a just and a zero carbon economy. I love these talking points. It's one of my favorite things about talking about degrowth and defunding the fossil fuel industry is just I feel like a lot of people who are very pro-fossil fuels, the first thing they'll say is like, well, what about the jobs? And one of my favorite things about the green economy transition is that there's so many amazing jobs to be had. Like So many. Yeah, like just the idea of growing the transit system across Canada. There's so many, oh, the opportunity for jobs in transit. They're massive. (laughs) I think there's a wonderful opportunity for large-scale public investment in regions that have been heavily dependent on fossil fuel extraction and refining for their economic stability in order to turn those economies into green economies and make use of the great skilled workers that sit in those economies right now and and need, frankly, to transition their careers from carbon-intensive industries to ones that fit our future green economy. Yes. And I just, I'm so frustrated every time I hear a news story about how, especially in Alberta, I love you guys so much. Like, it's so sad every time you hear a story that's just like, it's regressing and they're, they're leaning more on the fossil fuel industry or they're creating more tax cuts. And I just, I don't understand because like, we know it, I don't know what, it feels like it doesn't work, you know? So I I just, why? Well, I do think it is because we we aren't leading with big scale, large scale public investment. We haven't made that choice as a society yet to do so. We are still depending on the private sector to lead the way by providing incentives through massive tax credits. You know, the 2023 budget put forward, you know, five new green tax credits for industries that total 60 billion dollars of spending over the next 5 years. So we're planning on spending $60 billion to try to incentivize corporate action towards our green commitments, our emission reduction commitments. And, you know, I hope it works. I fear that it may not because we're not sure that there are good conditions on accessing those tax credits that really assure that we're going to get the kinds of emission reductions we want, uh, the kinds of local benefits that we want 
uh, good jobs for people um, that pay fair wages and actually jobs that are accessible for those in our communities that frankly don't have great employment options right now. Those kinds of conditions are needed on those tax credits and we're not sure that they're going to be there. Irrespective of whether they're there or not, we still need a, a public investment that allows for um, us to collectively, through our democratic institutions, invest our tax money in things that we know benefit our communities. Um, and that will, is actually what's going to help rebalance the scales um, in terms of investment that will lead us to an economy that rebalances the wealth. Yes. And I, I think I don't know. There's got to be space for both things to happen. But right now we're really leaning on the private sector involvement in like leading the climate change charge. And I just why can't we have both? Right. I think that's what a lot of what your report covers as well. Right. Yeah. And we can have both. I mean, I, I, we don't say end the tax credits um, in the report. And that's for a very good reason. We don't think that tax credits in and of themselves are a bad idea. We just think that there should be proper conditions on them. Uh, and we also think that they need to be matched with strong public investment. In fact, you know, what we've seen historically is that when the public decides to lead and invest, and when I say the public, I'm talking about public institutions that, you know, do public works. Public transit is a great, you know, a great example of this. When we lead the charge into growing a new part of the economy, what ends up happening is private sector follows and crowds in and starts making investments too, because the public sector investment creates stability in the growth of that economy. And then you see the private sector bring their own dollars, um, not dollars that we provide them, but their own dollars to start to invest in that area. If we decide to invest as a public sector in growing a, a particular type of green technology um, that is going to be useful in our future green economy, that will provide stability and assurance that the private sector can depend on, and it will crowd in its own investment around that without us having to do much in terms of subsidizing that. And I'm wondering, actually, like I love tax fairness, just I, to go off track a little bit. I love the work that you guys do, especially in Canada, but like globally, it's just, it's fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. No, and I was just wondering, like, I mean, you, you guys do such amazing work. And I, I wanted to ask about this report in particular. What kind of motivated you guys to to put this forward? Like, what um, what, what was the inspiring moment where you were like, let's write this hefty boy? <laughs> Well, I, I tell you, the, you know, the reasons behind why we wrote this report really come from our partners and our allies and our supporters over the last two or three years saying we really want to hear more about the tax system and its impact on climate change. We're tired of carbon taxes being the only conversation that exists around taxes and climate change. We need the linkage to be made between inequality, income inequality, and climate change through the tax system. Um, so it was really because we were asked to <laughs> put this report together um, by supporters, by the public, by various partners and allies we work with who felt like we needed to take a really good comprehensive look at the issue of the tax system and whether it is or isn't benefiting us in terms of supporting our climate action. And what we found is that, sadly, the tax system right now is having sort of a perverse impact 
on our climate action goals because of the way we subsidize industries and our fossil fuel industries are taking the greatest advantage of those subsidies um, and the way it funnels money to the most wealthy who have been the biggest beneficiaries of a high carbon economy and also tend to be the biggest contributors in terms of emissions. When you and your team were working on this report, was there anything that came up that was, I mean, I feel like a lot of it was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And it's nice to just kind of see it officially. But was there anything that really surprised you? I think probably the biggest surprise was looking at some of the very traditional uh, ways that the tax system supports economic activity in, in the private sector and seeing how much the fossil fuel sector was taking advantage of those particular measures. There, capital cost allowance is the one that comes to mind. Um, capital cost allowance where you're allowed to deduct from your profits the depreciation of your capital equipment and assets. You know, the fossil fuel industry is one of the biggest recipients of capital cost allowance, of even something called uh, an accelerated capital cost allowance, where they get to deduct more than the than the item, the piece of machinery is actually depreciated. And it's a huge benefit that they've gotten. They have saved billions and billions of dollars based off of that measure alone. And And that was a surprise to us. That's when we really understood the unintended consequences our tax system is having in terms of subsidizing um, the fossil fuel sector. That particular subsidy, I'm tr- I've am i never heard of it before our conversation and before I like read it in the report briefly, but like I'm having trouble wrapping my head around it. Are we essentially like paying for all of the equipment in the fossil fuel industry because they're not paying taxes on like they're just getting money back to replace their stuff? Like how how is that working? Well, the way capital cost allowance is a, is a it, it is a bit of an odd duck in terms of the deductions that corporations are allowed. It's not that we pay for their equipment, but what we do is we don't tax the cost of depreciation and we allow them to take it out of profit. So say you had a car and your car, you know, you bought it new at a certain price and then it depreciated by $1,000 the next year, you'd actually be able to take that $1,000 and deduct it from your income for that following year and say it depreciated by another $1,000 the next year you'd be able to reduce that again. And that's what corporations are allowed to do. They're basically allowed to take the depreciation of their equipment and reduce their profits that they're taxed on based off of that number. And so, you know, clearly this is something that the private sector gets that we don't get in our individual taxes at all. That's wild, actually. Like, I used to work in the oil industry. Like, briefly, I worked for a company that made bearings for downhole drilling. Super exciting stuff. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, it just, I, there's so many layers that I did, I have no idea about. And I used to be, like, involved in it. And, I mean, I, I love that this depreciation one as an example, just because it's like, it's, it feels small, but also, like, it's kind of huge. And it's just like, how many things are there that are like that, you know? Yeah, there are. I mean, we've also put in you know, a number of uh, tax credits for research and development. In fact, this using capital cost allowance and accelerating them, allowing them to be accelerated, mean, meaning you can deduct more than the capital equipment is actually depreciated, has been one of the traditional ways that the Canadian government has over the last three decades tried to incentivize emission reductions in the fossil fuel sector. 
So it's actually used accelerated capital cost allowances in order to push them towards investing in green technology, push them towards investing in different sorts of at-source emission reductions. Unfortunately, despite our efforts, we haven't seen clearly any evidence that any of the incent- these incentives actually uh, achieved any reductions. That's so fascinating. Yeah, because it sounds like, I mean, in theory, that sounds great, right? But if it does. Yeah. But so I can see why it got like approved. I can see why people like the sound of it. But if the numbers are here saying like, no, it's not helping, like, let's do something else, you know? In the same vein, uh, you know, we've put forward many different sorts of research and development uh, tax credits that some of those were particularly purposed towards pushing industries into innovation in green technologies, uh, green production methods. And the fossil fuel industry, once again, is one of the biggest recipients of those research and development tax credits. Uh, And in fact, you know, we've seen their emissions rise over the last five years while they were being the biggest recipients of those tax credits. And so it really draws the question for us now as we're considering investing $60 billion in new tax credits, what conditions do we need on these tax credits to ensure that this public money that's financing private sector development is well spent and spent getting us closer to our climate goals. So far, there's not a whole lot of evidence saying that the money we've spent over the last three decades has gotten us anywhere near our climate goals. Is there a role for the public in advocating for a transition? And and if so, what should we be asking for? Well, I think there's sort of three major things we need to purpose our tax system to really helping us achieve a just transition to a green economy, one that's inclusive and spreads prosperity for everyone. And the first one is we need broad tax measures that take some of the wealth that's been created by our high carbon intensive economy um, and puts it back into public hands. We need a wealth tax. You know, we need to end the capital gains loophole. We need excess profit tax and potentially uh, raising taxes on corporations overall in order for us to have the public funding we need for the public to actually lead the investment. That's the first thing. The second thing we need is we need to make sure that when we have environmental carrots and sticks out there in the tax system, be it the carbon tax, be it various types of tax credits, that the right conditions are put upon it to ensure that we're achieving the emissions that we want to emit and that the the burden of that tax is distributed fairly. So in terms of tax credits, we should have those credits tied directly to concrete reporting metrics that show the emissions being reduced. In terms of the carbon tax, we need a carbon tax that ensures that industry is paying its fair share. Um, And we need to design the the tariff system, the border system that allows that to happen. And the last thing is, is we need to end the support of the fossil fuel industry. It doesn't mean we need to end it immediately, but we need to figure out a phase out of our tax system support or other subsidies that go to the fossil fuel sector, understanding that we need to transition those regions and those workers over to a green economy. 
I have a hypothetical question and, uh, you know, it's not, hypotheticals aren't for everybody, but like, could we just end all of the subsidies today? Like, like, I know that everyone wants to do like a transition and society is big and it's hard, but like, what would happen if we did just, you know, tomorrow we had a radical change in government and we decided to stop supporting the fossil fuel industry entirely? Like, would, what would happen? Would the whole, would, would our society collapse like a house of cards? I don't think our society would collapse like a house of cards. And I think, you know, a certain amount of the fossil fuel sector would continue running, not quite business as usual, but they have significant, you know, significant assets of their own making to be able to uh, support their continued economic growth. So I don't think it would end completely. I do think the people who would be left out in the cold in that situation potentially could be the workers. And that's ultimately, as a society, who we need to care most about are the workers and communities that are dependent on those industries and how we provide them a transition that allows them to you know, have a good future in a green economy. And so, you know, right now, the fossil fuel sector, frankly, doesn't share much of its profit with its workers anyways. In fact, if you look at other, you know, comparable industries and sectors, um, it shares less of its profit than just about any other industry. It takes more of its profit and sends it to shareholders instead of putting it to wages, um, even though wages are quite good within the fossil fuel sector. So I think that we can find in a transition ways to have economic prosperity in those communities that potentially does a better job of sharing the wealth those communities create, Um, because frankly, the fossil fuel sector doesn't do it very well. Yeah, I mean, we just did an episode about the uh, universal basic income, and I'm super impatient. So I feel like uh, if, if I if I was in charge, <laughs> I would <laughs> I would end everything that's going to support the fossil fuel industry. I would implement a wealth tax, and then I would turn around and take all that money that we suddenly had coming in and just give it to the people who would be most impacted. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I'm too radical. <laughs> I mean, I think I think there's a you know an interesting argument in the future economy for basic income, you know, particularly if we mix it with this idea of transition, if we mix it with the idea of trying to redistribute wealth um, that's become too concentrated in our economy, and you know have it reflect um, also the idea that our economy is becoming more automated and needs less workers. Um, in order to take us to where we want to go. Now, I'm definitely getting out of my area of expertise talking about that, so I won't go into any depth there. But I think, you know, ideas like a basic income do have a place of consideration as we do this transition to what we hope is a more just economy that's also much kinder to our environment. Okay, great. So we're at the end. We understand how subsidies work. We understand how we could transition away from them. And we understand how what we're doing is like kind of working, I guess, but not really and certainly not at the scale that we need to meet our goals. So I'm going to lend you my magic wand. I <laughs> It has a couple of wishes in it. So you are able to fix overnight the thing that you think is the biggest problem maybe with the tax system or maybe with the way that subsidies are being implemented and just, you know, tap it away with a tap of the wand. What what would you like to see change immediately? I would like to see um, Canada put in broad tax measures like a wealth tax um, in order to rebalance economic power and spend that towards reducing our emissions via public works 
I think that's the biggest thing we could do. If I could make the big change tomorrow, it would be growing the public purse in order to undertake the expenditures that we collectively at society want to get us to a green future. Right now, we're starving ourselves. We're starving our collective vision because we're not allowing ourselves to go get the revenues that we need from the people who've basically held them and concentrated them, dare I say, hoarded them, and basically have kept them away from the rest of us. That's a great use of the magic wand. I appreciate that. And I really... And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I know you you guys are super busy doing some amazing work, and I, I'm really uh, pleased that we had a chance to to talk about it. My pleasure. My pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity for, especially knowing how early it is there in the morning for you, and uh, good luck with uh, your future endeavors editing this piece. I apologize for some of my wordiness sometimes. These concepts don't come in simple 10-word sentences, unfortunately. No, and I mean, that's why we do a podcast instead of a TikTok page. <laughs> <laughs> we can do we can do tax fairness in TikTok. We, we do actually do it. But it doesn't allow for a fulsome discussion. Everybody, everybody go follow Tax Fairness Canada on TikTok. <laughs> I'm certainly going to do it. I follow you guys. I'm on your newsletter. I, I love the work that you do, and I think everybody should subscribe certainly at the very least that they can sign petitions and stay updated with the work that y'all are doing. So thank you so much. Please do. We have a monthly newsletter and uh, and we find ways to make taxes interesting. They do. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. I really appreciate it talking to you today. <laughs>